I am hosting a retreat in Tulum, Mexico, in paradise this October called Bloom in Tulum. It's a five-day, all-inclusive, personal and professional growth retreat for ambitious, big-hearted women who are ready to step into their power with grace, support, and confidence. So my two biz besties and I dreamed up this magical retreat over sushi a few months back, and after lots of planning, it's actually happening. We have mapped out a thoughtful itinerary with lots of downtime to make the most of this beautiful paradise beachside location and also set you up for a powerful and memorable experience of growth. There's only 20 spots available and all three of us are promoting it to our full community. So that's like over 50,000 people. So I imagine the spots will fill very quickly. If you are interested in joining us in Bloom and Tulum, go to bloomintulum.com for all the details and to complete your application. Also know that early bird pricing ends on June 30th. So it's a really good time to secure your spot and save some money. I mean, honestly, like how fun would it be to hang out in person at a gorgeous, luxurious, all-inclusive in October? So head to Bloom in Tulum. That's B-L-O-O-M in Tulum. T-U-L-U-M. Bloomintulum.com for all the details and complete your application. I like everybody I'm sure just thought, well, well, I'm in this relationship. We love each other. We're going to work through our problems. And then at some point it's going to be smooth sailing. But I kept noticing that that point never, we never got to that point, no matter how much we did. So I just had to come to the conclusion, you know, my anecdotal observation is that it's not ever going to stabilize. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 189. Today, we're talking about conscious relationships with Susan Piver. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Membership, and I'm the author of the upcoming new book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back, dear listener. I am so glad to have you here today. This is a really exciting episode for me because Susan Piver has so much great information. I was so, I felt so lucky to talk to her because she is such an incredible teacher and human. And she is the New York Times bestselling author. She's a Buddhist teacher, a keynote speaker, and founder of the Open Heart Project. And we talk about her latest book, The Four Noble Truths of Love Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. And we're going to talk about why is it so hard to make relationships work and what she does. Susan applies this Buddhist wisdom to modern relationships, sharing this really timeless wisdom on how to love. And you're going to find that she really challenges your ideas about relationships and help you go deeper into loving yourself and your partner. So I'm so excited for you to join me at the table as I talk to Susan, and I want you to listen for a few takeaways. 
one, that attention is the most basic form of love. This is so, so clear. Two, that self-improvement can actually be a gesture of aggression. Hmm, what does this mean? Well, you gotta listen to find out. And then finally, that we can switch our intention from I want to be loved to I want to love. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that so much. So I want to let you know that the Mindful Parenting membership is closed now, but it's been so exciting to get all this incredible feedback from people. So I hope you'll join us next time we come around. If you haven't, Kateri said to me, I love this course. So the Mindful Parenting course is inside the membership now. I've taken it every time. Hunter has offered it since fall of 2007. I learn something new each time and it has helped me so much to shift to being a more mindful mama, mindful spouse, and mindful family member, and mindful friend. So, so cool. So a lot of the incredible information in the course is in the book. Raising Good Humans is available now for pre-sale. I'm so excited about it. And we are going to be having an event to launch the pre-sale called Raising Good Humans Live. And we are going to have, I think, nine now. We have nine amazing guests who are going to be doing live interviews with me, including Dr. Laura Markham, including Hal Runkle, the screen-free parent, including the authors of How to Get Your Little Kids to Listen, Joanna Farber and Julie King. So it is going to be an awesome, awesome event. I don't have the link for you to join yet, but you can go now to RaisingGoodHumansBook.com. That's RaisingGoodHumansBook.com. There's a link there to pre-order the book, and you'll be right in line to get all our pre-order bonuses as we are offering them. So uh, I'm so excited about this. I've gotten so much incredible feedback. So thank you to, to you if you have been giving feedback or offered to be on my book launch team. It's been, I got so much um, wonderful response from that, that I just was like, I just felt amazing in my heart. So thank you. Thank you to everyone who has responded. And I invite you to go to raisinggoodhumansbook.com and check it out. And, and then we'll, of course, let you know when the, the live event happens and that will be just at the end of this month of October so keep an ear out for that okay now I want you to listen carefully and beautifully to the wisdom of Susan Piver in this episode let's dive right in Susan thank you so much for coming on the mindful mama podcast my pleasure I'm glad to be here as I told you, I'm so excited about your book, The Four Noble Truths of Love. It just meets so many good places for me, and I ate it all up, and it's beautifully and simply written. I'm just going to fangirl on you for a second. <laughs> I would like be reading it at the pool, and I'd be like, listen, listen to this line, and I would just read it out loud. <laughs> So I love this book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because as you know, with writers, we just write it and hit send and then we don't know what happens. So thank oh you. Oh my gosh. Lovely to yes. hear that. Yes, yes. So, and you had a very successful book many years back, right? The 100 Questions You Should Ask Before You Get Married. It's probably something. It's called The Hard Questions. The Hard Questions. Yeah, exactly. And it was the, these 100 questions. Um, and so what 
kind of what cut you started writing about relationships in general? Well, my own relationship, first and foremost. When I wrote the hard questions, I was getting going to get married, and it just seemed like a crazy thing to do. And for whatever reason, I've always just wanted to do things as honestly as I can. Not for whatever reason. I'm sure most people feel that way. But when it comes to these big commitments, like, I will love you. We will stay together for the rest of our lives. I'm like, how could I actually say that? Honestly, when I I don't know if I will love you. I don't know if we'll stay together for the rest of our lives. I'd rather not start out on the BS foot here. (laughs) What is this? How do you do this? And also, I mean, I'm still married to the same person. I, I, I loved my boyfriend, my now husband, who I still love, usually. I didn't want to hurt him. So I just started thinking about it. And then the hard questions were not never intended to be a book. I just wrote down some questions to ask him because the sort of epiphany for me was just because you love someone does not mean you're going to love your life together. And for whatever reason, I never, no one said that. No one said just because you love someone doesn't mean you're going to be able to make a happy life together. So it's it's funny. It strikes me as an an unusually honest way of thinking about it because most of us were, you know, we're brought up under the cultural mythology of finding the person is the thing that's going to make you happy. And you did not buy into that. I didn't uh, because all I had to do was look right, look left. (laughs) And I saw a lot of evidence that that is not accurate, that that is not all there is to it. And, you know, from my own life, but also from, you know, just everywhere you look, it's clearly not true. So I wrote these questions down. And then around the same time, a few years before I got married, well, not more than a few, maybe six or seven years, I had become a Buddhist. I had to formally become a Buddhist. So I've been a Buddhist for about 25 years now. And I kept encountering teachings that I found useful in my relationship that I had never heard before from a more conventional, quote unquote, wisdom. And the teachings themselves weren't particularly about romantic relationships because very few Buddhist teachings are. No, they wouldn't be. (laughs) No, they wouldn't be. Because... Most of the teachings come from monastics. Yeah. And also, you know, we in the West hold romantic love in a particular way that is not, you know, shared by other time periods and, and cultures. So I think The Four Noble Truths of Love is the first book ever written by a Buddhist teacher who is also a wife, mm-hmm. which kind of struck me like dumb when I thought about that. Of course, it will not be the last. It will not be the best, but it may be the first. So there are just teachings on how to love in Buddhism that seem very relevant to my everyday romantic life. Yeah. Yeah. For the listener, the Four Noble Truths are the founding teaching of the Buddha. You know, this is like the epiphany that the Buddha had in his moment when he came out and and was enlightened and was a person without any suffering anymore. And you take the Four Noble 
truths and you apply them really beautifully to relationships. So can you share what the four noble truths of relationships are? Yes. Uh, the four noble truths of, of the Buddha, just briefly, because they provide the, the framework for the four noble truths of love, are just, as you say, the very first teachings given by the Buddha upon his enlightenment. And the first one is, life is suffering, which sounds horrible. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I always think of it as life has, right? Or that's a good way to that, think about it. That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard that a, a possible translation for the Pali word, I believe it's Pali or Sanskrit, is dukkha. And the translation is unsatisfactory. Mm, yeah. So life is unsatisfactory is the first noble truth, meaning everything changes. Mm-hmm. There's no ground to stand on. And the second noble truth is called the cause of suffering, which in the case of the Buddhist four noble truths is grasping. Grasping causes suffering, which basically means pretending the first noble truth isn't true. Mm-hmm. That's the actual cause of suffering. Yeah. The third noble truth is called the cessation of suffering which basically says now that you know the cause, you know the cure. Just stop doing that. (laughs) Obviously not so easy, but clear. And then the fourth noble truth is called the Eightfold Path, which are the steps to stop doing that. Right view, right intention, right speech, and so on. So when I was in a very painful part of my own marriage, we just couldn't get along. It wasn't like anything had happened. We just didn't like each other for a long time. It was very strange, but these things happen. I remember thinking, I don't know how to start fixing this. We, we've tried everything. And then uh, my next thought was begin at the beginning. At the beginning are four noble truths. And so that started me thinking about the four noble truths and how they might apply to my relationship. And the first noble truth being relationships never stabilize. They're uncomfortable. No one had told me that either. This is like a bomb dropped on the listener. What? What? Are you kidding? <laughs> the relationships never stabilize. I mean, Thanks no. a lot, Susan. I know. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> well, you know, don't take my word for that. And maybe I'm wrong. It's entirely <laughs> possible. But look at your own relationship. Look at your own life. What has stabilized? What is not constantly in flux? please report back to me if you find something. And there are certainly are relationships that have long periods of ease, but none of those phases are permanent. Mm-hmm. So I, like everybody, I'm sure, just thought, well, well, I'm in this relationship. We love each other. We're going to work through our problems. And then at some point, it's going to be smooth sailing. But I kept noticing that that point never, we never got to that point, no matter how much we did. So I just had to come to the conclusion, you know, my anecdotal observation is that it's not ever going to stabilize and it's unpredictable and I don't know what's going to make us feel close and I don't know what's going to tear us apart and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So, okay, truth number one. And then truth number two is the cause of the instability in this case, which to me seems like trying to stabilize it anyway, Mm. trying to make it comfortable. And of course, all relationships should be, you should work on them and they should make you happy. And I'm not insinuating otherwise. 
And I also, I always feel it's very important to say that I'm not talking about sources of discomfort like abuse or addiction. Yeah. Those things not included, different category. This approach does not apply. But otherwise, trying to make them comfortable is actually what makes them uncomfortable to a large degree. So if you just woke up with your next to your partner or called your friend or just thought about any relationship that's important to you and um, tried to imagine what would it be like if I just it gave up the idea this is going to make me feel comfortable. Yeah, so it's, not, it's like the idea, it's like wanting us, wanting it to be perfect or wanting it to be optimal. That's the cause of our suffering around this. You're, I would say wanting it, wanting it to be comfortable is fine. Mm-hmm. Wanting it to be optimal is fine. Wanting it to look like something that it isn't mm. is more problematic. And just rejecting out of hand that this discomfort is part of the gig is mm. setting up a lot of suffering. Mm. And yeah. Yeah, it's we are supported by Melon Headwear. These hats are perfect for Father's Day. They are built to be in and around water. They last five times longer than any other hat. They're naturally antimicrobial properties. It doesn't, sweat doesn't break down the hat. No sweat stains, no smell ever. It's built for the water. We tested it tubing on the Brandywine River and it was fabulous. It even floats when it drops in the water. It doesn't lose shape. It is amazing. An incredible, comfortable fit. Use code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off your order. If you're trying to figure out a Father's Day gift, honestly, trust me, this is exactly what they want. Go to melon.com, that's M-E-L-I-N.com, and use the code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off. Melon rarely offers discounts, so don't miss this opportunity. It is, I swear, the perfect Father's Day gift. Premium headwear, melon.com. Use the code mindful for 30% off. We are sponsored by Midi Health. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, vaginal dryness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. All of these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around perimenopause and menopause. And the experts at Midi Health understand what you're experiencing and how to help. Midi clinicians are menopause experts dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions. Medicare is covered by insurance, and with Midi Health, you can stop pushing through it all alone. Schedule a virtual visit to discuss your symptoms and health background in depth. You'll come out of the experience feeling heard and with a plan to start feeling better. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Joinmidi.com. So it's like this resistance to the idea that there that we're gonna have discomfort. It's like fighting the the discomfort, not wanting the discomfort, pushing it away, or pretending it's not there, and all of those things. That's that's the part of the big part of the thing that's causing us a lot of difficulty. Yeah, and then we 
at least speaking for myself, tend to add on, and it's your fault. Oh, yeah, of course. Or it's my fault. Yeah. It, it, we, and it, it, it's true, I may be responsible. You may be responsible. That's important to look at those things. I no way suggesting otherwise. But to think that you're, we're ever going to get to a point where this is no longer happening is a cause of more suffering than the actual disconnects you have with an actual person, which are inevitable. Because we start to think, well, this is not working. This is not that more and more with each month and year that goes by, that the relationship is about me. And it is, but only 50%. And it's, it's hard to remember that. And it's hard to let go of the idea that this should make me happy. Mm. It should, it, I hope it does. I want my own relationship to make me happy. But when I hold this should make me happy above, I love you, then I've, got, I've gone upside down. Mm. I've flipped the priorities. This is, is for, for myself, since I work and, you know, teach about parenting, like I saw so many parallels of this with the relationship with our children, right? Like expecting the relationship to should make me happy is one of the big causes of difficulty and suffering for for parents like this is this should make me happy so so yeah so this is like and this person is about me this child or this partner is about me whatever happens comes out of their mouth or whatever happens between us is a reflection of something about me and that is only partly true Mm. you know we're constantly projecting obviously i don't i mean i think it's obvious our ideas onto others. I think I wrote about this in the book. It's like mm-hmm. we have a lens in the middle of our forehead and there's a movie playing in our mind. This is what children should do. This is what love should look like. And everywhere we look, that movie is projecting onto the environment. And anyone who comes into the screen is cast in some role. And that's normal. It's but but some ability to work with those projections to not hold them as the sole truth, I think is the beginning of true love, honestly. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to see reality as they are. I love that you, you talked about that. And I, in one of my underlined pieces that I shared with other people, you said, the truth is you'll be faced over and over again with choosing between your actual partner and who you imagined they could or should be. And I love that. Yeah. Again, unless there's abuse or addiction, I just, yeah. I just don't want anyone who's in that kind of situation to feel like, oh, some Buddhist lady said I should, you know, yeah, work with this. No. Yeah. So, so the first noble truth: relationships aren't ever going to be stable. Mm-hmm. The Thank second no, second noble truth that it's this expecting. It's our expectation. It's this expectation that it's going to be stable and and it's this is going to be <clears throat> my whole fulfillment and all of that. That's what makes things unstable. It, it has a big influence. And then the third noble truth is the cessation of the suffering, which in this case is meeting the discomfort together is love. That's the third noble truth or riding the instability together is love. 
So a great partner, I think, is not necessarily one who, when difficulty arises, will sort of face off with you and go, well, I did this. Oh, okay, well, you did that. And uh, try to, I mean, it's, that, that's great to do. And that's a good partner. Someone who will talk about it with you. But a great partner, I think, is one who will turn to face the part of the cycle with you, who will see the instability with you, with the sense of we are holding hands, whether literally or figuratively, and we're seeing together, now we love each other, and now we don't. And now you love me, but I'm not that keen on you. Or now we're both into some kind of confusion. So to, to see where you are together on this ride doesn't mean that the ride is going to smooth out, but it means that you're seated together. You know, I sort of picture it like a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And you're seated together and you're on this ride and you don't know what's coming around the bend. And that we're in it together doesn't mean, and so therefore we love each other and everybody's fine and I always think what you do is awesome. Just means as the, as the waves roil and the weather fronts come in and out, we're seeing it together. I think that's a beautiful thing. That's the third noble truth. Seeing the discomfort together is love. Um, um, my, my husband, my partner is, is um, you know, it's interesting. I saw him, you have some types later in the book, but he is, he is averse to um, people's discomfort and <laughs> averse to discomfort, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I am not, <laughs> I'm okay with facing difficult things. And, um, yeah, it, it's interesting to, to kind of go through that roller coaster. I mean, so, so uh, there's so much to dive into here, but then you, and then of course the the fourth noble truth is the, the path, right? The steps to, to love each other more, more deeply. And, but I'm, so this is something that, now I just want to dive into though, something that you said in there that, which is that, um, so relationships are unstable and there are times you say when I love you and you don't love me as much, or I I'm feeling very close to you and you're feeling kind of checked out. It seems like for many people, this would be a a major crisis, but you and your partner have, you're still together. You have gone through many, many of these sort of waves of separation. For many people, it's just um, they're averse to even having, I guess that's the difficult, that's the instability, right? They're averse to just having that, at all. That's the second noble truth. Yeah. Thinking it should be comfortable is the cause of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And I so, understand that aversion is painful. It's so vulnerable. It's so, so, ter- it could be terrifying. I'm not saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. But it's, you, we, you can be brave and vulnerable which are in some ways the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, I have seen Brene Brown's recent Netflix talk and of course yeah. listen to her work, but she talks about that very beautifully. I watched it with my kids. Oh, great. Maybe you can watch it with your kids if they're old enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Brave and vulnerability being 
the same thing. So uh, we're talking about big, deep concepts here. Can you tell, talk to us a little bit about what this looks like in real life? And for example, in, in your life with your partner, but what, what does this look like to say, okay, I give up on the idea that we're going to get to this perfect, stable place. And I'm going to accept that there is this instability. And I'm going to accept that it's okay that there are times where you're not that into me. That seems like that I'm, I can imagine the listener may be having some pushback against that idea. So what does that look like? Well, the first example that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, every couple has big differences in the way they are and the way they see things. And I'm a very solitary person. I never thought I would, would get married. I, I like doing things by myself. I get more dr- pleasure out of doing things alone. Going to eat, going to a movie, taking a walk. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, I'm going to enjoy it more. It's going to be more relaxing for me if I do it by myself. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I, that's how I'm wired. My husband's the opposite. He likes to do everything together. He gets more enjoyment out of everything if we do it together. And for a long time, I was like, why are you up in my grill all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you freaking me out? Why are you being so needy? And then I realized, well, yeah, maybe he was needy, but I'm needy too. And he was actually just different than me. He likes to be together. We kind of have a traditional gender reversal here. Mm -hmm. And so when I started seeing, actually, a friend of mine told me, who's a marriage counselor, so great. He said, in every relationship, there seems to always be one person who's pulling for more togetherness Mm. and one person who's pulling for more separateness, more individuation. And he said, both of those things are important for a healthy relationship, a strong sense of togetherness and a strong sense of individuation. So when he said that, I realized, oh, he's just representing, he's holding that tent pole. He's not trying to be an ass. <laughs> <laughs> he's not trying to be intrusive. He's actually holding that tent pole. I can learn something from him. And I'm holding the other tent pole. He can learn something from me. So I'm not saying, oh, that problem solved or anything like that. But over time, I like to go away on retreats. I'm a, I'm a Buddhist teacher and I... I I used to apologize for that, but I don't apologize for it anymore. And he feels more supportive toward me. And I have come out of my shell and made a lot of, I think, uh, efforts to open myself to togetherness, even though it's uncomfortable for me. And he has made a lot of efforts to open himself to individuation, even though it's uncomfortable for him. So, I think the trick, though, was we started to see the value in the other's way. Mm. And that changed things. That enabled us to respect each other rather than think, why are you, don't, you don't see how it relationships the way I do. What's your problem? Mm. Yeah. Does wow. That yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It strikes me as it requires a lot of 
clear thinking (laughs) (laughs) strikes me as needing a lot of self-understanding, understanding of, you know, what is triggering you, understand, you know, understanding of your partner being lots and lots of clear thinking, and so, which leads us to what, you know, you, you share as sort of the path to better relationships, which is, is mindfulness. Is my, I mean, mindfulness is a huge part of that. So t- tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, just as you say, it takes a lot of self-awareness and it takes a lot of a willingness to work with discomfort, which the opposite of which is pushing discomfort away, which of course is natural. You're making me feel uncomfortable. Get away. Is there something wrong with you? Or I'm getting away from you. But to stay with the feelings of discomfort, to allow them, not to like them mm-hmm. or excuse them or anything, but just to feel them is the gateway to working with them. Otherwise, we're just locked in battle. So mindfulness, quote unquote, I would call it meditation, is not a life hack to making everything okay. Mm. It's not about lowering the stress hormone cortisol or making you a better leader. I don't think the Buddha taught meditation like this will make you a better leader or a better athlete, or, you know, enable you to get a better night's sleep. All of those things are great. And all of those things can be impacted by a meditation practice. But the real, you know, foundation of the practice is not becoming a better athlete. It's opening your heart. Mm. It's not a mistake that Buddhist meditation is so famously associated with compassion. And if you stop and think, well, what is sitting there doing nothing, quote unquote, have to, how can that possibly make you more compassionate? You know, you will find perhaps that that sitting there doing nothing, quote unquote, is a gesture of friendship toward yourself. You're softening toward yourself. You're opening to yourself instead of what we usually do. You need to do this better. You screwed that up. You should try harder and don't do this and do, do that. Meditation, we just say, just be yourself. Just be exactly who you are, which is a rare invitation. Don't try to work on yourself. Don't try to stop thinking. Don't try to think happy things. Be an ass. Be beautiful. Be confused. Be boring. Be scintillating. Great. So that you cultivate this ability to be with what is as it shifts and changes, which is what always happening. So then when you get up from the cushion and you look in the eyes of someone else, You retain that capacity to be with what is happening, which is always shifting and changing. So the point of meditation is not to be good at meditating. It does not matter if you're the world's best follower of the breath. (laughs) I want my meditation award. (laughs) Exactly. Sorry, you only get bronze. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're good at meditation. What matters is, are you good at being yourself? And we practice being ourselves on the cushion so that we can be ourselves when we enter our lives. And when it comes to relationships, that is of utmost importance. My husband's not a meditator. So I'm not saying you have to be have a meditation practice in order to be in a relationship. I have to. But there are other people who do it different ways. So, mm-hmm. But the upshot, I think, is it's not for everyone. Relationships are not for everyone. 
Hmm. Love affairs are different. I'm not talking about that. But it's not, you got to grow up to do it. And I don't mean that in a boring, you know, work a day way. But I mean, you have to take a big view. You have to have a big mind. You have to have a strong heart. And those things take cultivation. You're not born with those things, unless you're Buddha or something. Yeah. Well, he wasn't born with them either, but uh, yeah. And that clear thinking, like you said that you wrote in the book with the practice of meditation, you begin to treat or not, sorry, this is not with the practice of of meditation, but say pre-meditation, maybe you, you begin to treat your beloved the way you treat your own mind. And the meditation is about understanding the way you are treating your own mind. So tell me about that, treating your beloved the way you treat your own mind. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I learned this from a wonderful woman Buddhist teacher named Pema Khandro Rinpoche. She's great. And we were talking about the path of the bodhisattva or the you know, person who wants to be a benefit in the world. And she was saying part of the bodhisattva path is working with your own mind so to cultivate gentleness and kindness toward yourself. Not because there will be a great psychological benefit from that, although there will, but because the closer we get to other people, especially the, our, our partner, the more diffuse the boundary becomes between us and them. And you can't always tell what, what is me and what is you. You come in in a bad mood suddenly my mood is different. Or, you know, we have enormous influence on each other. In other words, the boundary between us begins to diffuse. And when it does, the way we talk to ourselves can easily become the way we talk to others because we're actually not quite sure where do I end and you begin. So if the way I talk to myself is gentle and honest and fierce, because I'm not trying to paint a picture of being a pussy, (laughs) <laughs> it's fierce and honest and kind. The likelihood that you will use that same voice to speak to others is vastly increased. As yeah. and the opposite is also true. Yeah, this is um, for for this teaching too. I thought very much of parenting and children, and this is something that um, many particularly moms are very hard on themselves. They put themselves last. They don't treat themselves very well. And they're very unkind. We're very unkind to ourselves in our minds, very harsh and mean. And, and I, you know, often teach that, you know, what is inside is what will come out when you're squeezed. You're like an orange. (laughs) What's inside is what will come out. And, and, and this is, um, this is very much saying the same thing, right? That this, we have to understand what a, what's going on in the contents of our own mind to, to be able to, to relate well with, with others. I could not agree more. And then often we hear that, especially women, and I'm sure moms, as, uh-oh, I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. I better make myself be nice which of course is a gesture of aggression and will never result in desired outcome. So you can't beat yourself up to be nicer. So the first step is always just gentleness, relaxing with yourself, hearing the voice that you don't like, listening to it, making space for it, not trying to manipulate and change yourself. 
and then getting mad at yourself for getting mad at others. Yeah. That just won't really work. So that first step is that acceptance, like this is what is, and, and then and then gentleness. But but I yeah, like that acceptance of this is what is. Like oh, listen to the voice in my head. This is terrible. Accepting that is like, um, is like, but I, I see that that's a win, right? Like until you see that, you can't, there's nothing you could ever do about it. The seeing is the only thing. Accepting is optional. Mm. You don't have to accept it. Mm. But you can see yourself rejecting it. Mm. And then you can see yourself feeling bad about that. And then you can see yourself trying again. It's, a, it's just the seeing that's important, not the work manipulating or changing. So it, it, in the way I was taught, it, it, that's called relaxing. You relax with what is. Accepting it is not a relaxing thing. Mm. So it's minus that step even. It's much, it's simpler. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. And then relaxing with what is is just is that that's like loosening our our grasp in some way or loosening the habit energy or it's just seeing mm -hmm. because you could see i can't loosen my grasp that's fine just see that don't try to loosen it for at first mm -hmm. just see it mm -hmm. there's a zen teacher named john tarrant roshi who's also a poet who wrote this great thing it's my entire book in one Two sentences, so I'm, you know, a little upset with him. <laughs> but he said it so pithily. He said, attention is the most basic form of love. Yeah. Through it, we bless and are blessed. So in meditation, as you know, we work with our attention, our awareness. And we place it on a chosen object. In our case, it's the breath. So when you see yourself being angry, you place your attention on that. That is the love. 
Just giving it that attention rather than running away from it or stuffing it down. And if you run away from it, just see that. And if you stuff it down, see that. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is stop working on yourself for a minute. Mm. Just be with yourself. Mm. That's the seed syllable of love. The seed syllable of love? Yeah, well, that's in Buddhist, you know, in Tibetan traditions in particular, there's mantra practice. Mm-hmm. And every great deity has a seed syllable, like Om is a seed mm. syllable. It's not a word. It's a, it's, a, it's a little syllable that if you were to drop water on it, it would just, you know, unpack itself into some vast view of reality. So, and I, I'm just trying to say that awareness is the seed syllable of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I see what you mean. So to get from the um, to get from that sort of big, sort of vast view to to something more concrete, you talk about the container principle and five steps to creating a strong container. So I was wondering if you could tell tell us about what is the container principle and and these five steps. Uh, the container principle is the principle that says the space or the conditions under which something happens influence the something Mm -hmm. and something influences the space or the conditions. So in other words, if you practice meditation in a beautiful monastery, it feels one way, but if you get on the bus in New York city and practice meditation, it feels another way. You're the same. The practice is the same, but the container has changed. Yeah. So with love, it seems like we're constantly looking at our hearts to do all the heavy lifting. Like, you need to be softer, you need to be stronger, you need to be clearer. Okay, good. But we don't have to put all the full onus on ourselves, on our psychology and our inner life and our so forth. We can create a world that is conducive to love. We can create a container that sort of invites love. And, and I, I, you said several times, these are big principles and they are, but I don't think, I also think they're very down to earth. I, I feel like these are, this is a way of naming something real and you don't have to believe any of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even matter if you do, it's not helpful. What, what's helpful is doing, doing something, doing it, seeing how it works for you. Anyway. So I was taught that the five ways to create a container uh, that where, from which you can draw love. So in other words, you're not always trying to feed love into the environment. The, the world is giving you love too, uh, are the following. And they're very simple. And the first one is clean up your space. <laughs> Marie Kondo would like that. <laughs> I know. I love Marie Kondo. I think she's just totally is nailing the, the profound and the mundane <laughs> through her work and I just love her and and we all know you know if you have a closet that's full of crap and you're walking by there's this always this sense of like I'm trying to avoid that <laughs> you just say whatever I'm just gonna get in there I'm gonna pull everything out and I'm gonna fold it and I'm gonna give away I'm gonna put some things back and then you walk by it you're like oh that's not it gives you a certain feeling yeah and that's real that's real so clean up your space you know in a relationship doesn't just mean keep a neat house 
or even at all doesn't mean keep a neat house. You can be whatever your comfort level is with your partners, what it is fine. It means tend to the environment and keep it basically orderly or your version of orderly. Cause some people are hoardery and some people are minimalist and they tend to marry each other as far as I can see. <laughs> <laughs> but some sense of our environment is in order is changes the way you feel about yourself and each other. It's weird, but don't take my word for it. I can, I can attest to that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So are you the more like, let's get things in order person? Well, I my family growing up is kind of has an artistic, eclectic clutter, mm-hmm. um, which I was a little bit more used to. Um, and my husband kind of would, he would be happy living in like a Zendo or something. Right. like. Which, <laughs> um, so we've come together and I, I have absorbed his, uh, his tendencies towards neatness over the years. I, I really appreciate them now. Um, but yeah, we're somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. So are we, I would say, <laughs> but it changes things when you have an environment that you are caring for. It's the caring is the, mm-hmm. actually the seed syllable here. It's not perfecting or mastering. It's caring about your environment. Like, is this clean? You know, do we put this here or there? That kind of thing. I'm holding things up. So I know people can't <laughs> And the second principle is, uh, wear nice clothes, which doesn't mean wear fancy clothes. <laughs> this basically means wear clothes that you like. Yeah. Wear, wear clean clothes. Wear clothes that you feel good on in. And that changes how you feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think any of these things are big revelations. But if you, it feels one way to take something out of your closet that's like, oh, I like this color. I like how it feels. It's clean. Let me put it on. Versus I'm going to pick my sweats up off the floor from yesterday and put them on. It just gives you a different mental state. As I read this in your book, I was thinking about a past guest, um, uh, Jeannie Stith Moeni, who who did the episode Simplify in a Colorful Way. So if you're interested more in this, dear listener, go back to that one. (laughs) All right. That sounds cool. And then the third step is easily misunderstood because there's so much, we have all so much baggage around this particular issue, but it's eat good food. And that does not mean eat healthy food or eat a clean quote unquote diet, which really, really makes me angry and irritated. So, so this food's clean. That means all this other food is dirty. Uh, I think that's some kind of BS. <laughs> Doesn't mean stop eating dairy or cut out gluten. It just means eat food of good quality. So that if you, you know, want to eat, if you're a vegan, just get good vegetables, good grains. If you eat meat, get a good cut. Get something, care. Again, it's about caring. Caring about your space, caring about your body and your clothes, caring about what you put in your pie hole. And that gives a sense of elegance. And that sense of elegance is useful in maintaining you know, a sense of dignity in your relationship. And then the third, fourth step is spend time with people who like you. <laughs> you know, of course, we all have people in our lives that we don't like them or they don't like us and what they're related to us or we work with them. We can't just cut them out. But as much as possible, maximize the time you spend with people who like you and minimize otherwise. And then spend time in the natural world uh, remembering that the perspective is bigger than you think. 
So those are five steps to creating the container principle in your life and in your relationship. I love, I really enjoyed that, that piece of that. Um, And, you know, I, I want to be cognizant of your time, you know, thinking about the, the listener who, you know, I, I really recommend that you should get this book. It's, it's wonderful. There's so much more here. You talk about openness and about bravery and about right speech and fearlessness and all of these things. But for the person who's, who's listening and, you know, I guess maybe one thing I think I would like to maybe leave with is I really like what you said on page 115, where you talk about the idea of switching our intention from, I want to be loved to, I want to love. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'm so happy that you keyed on that. That that seems to be kind of everything. When you go into any situation or relationship, whether it's with your partner or friend or anyone, with the idea, I want to be loved, which is quite natural and beautiful, nothing wrong with it, it can feel disempowering. And like, I'm waiting. Are you going to love me? Are you going to give me love? Do I deserve it? Reasonable, reasonable questions. Um, But when you walk into the same situation, not abandoning that question, because that's an important question, but elevating to the top position, a different question, which is, can I give love? It's hard for women, especially um, because I'm not suggesting you put yourself second or ignore your needs. So I just don't want, I want to be very clear about that. Thank you. You're welcome. But actually, when you go into a situation thinking, can I give love? That's the seat of power. That's the, that changes everything. It makes you feel like, I don't know, I'm not waiting for anything. I'm not wondering if I'm worthy. I, I'm looking for the chances to love. And that's exciting. And that's energizing. And that's a gesture of power. Mm-hmm. hoping to be loved is not. So that that's what I meant by that. Yeah. And that's beautiful because if I say I want to love, you know, I know I can go in my house, you know, in, in 10 minutes and I know I could, there's things I could do to love my husband that would make him feel loved, you know, and that's a really beautiful way of doing it. Um, it's like, putting putting yourself in the the position and i think that somehow we we do that much, we must do that much more naturally with our children right we just want to love them but with our partner there's it's it goes all the way back right again to those expectations uh that uh that trip us up those what we what we're projecting onto them about how they should be and how this should be and how i should feel mm-hmm. um and I, this idea of going in and loving maybe loving ourselves and loving our partner a little bit more fully. I, you know, I think that's kind of what this, you know, comes down to. It's really, it really is a a beautiful, beautiful book, Susan. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. So I love it. Anyway, thank you. I guess I want to just thank you. If there's, is there anything that we, we didn't discuss that you want to draw to the, draw to the fore that, that you think is important for the listener to hear about? I don't think so. I think we touched on some really wonderful points. I appreciate you, your careful and considered read of the book. It means a lot. Thank you. 
Well, thank you. And thank you for this work. I really feel as a writer, I really appreciate it. Um, there, I appreciate the simplicity of your, your writing. It's not a book that will take you a bazillion years to read. It's, it's, <laughs> but it, you say all the things that are needed to be said and, and each word packs, packs a punch. <laughs> it's powerful. Thank so you. I, I highly recommend and re- recommend it to your reader. And I just, I'm, I'm sure that this work with your writing and with what you're doing in the world is is making great ripple effects so so thank you for for doing all that you do and thank you for coming on the mindful mama podcast my pleasure wow i think susan's wisdom is just amazing gives me so much to think about and i'm probably going to be listening to this episode again and again maybe you'll be listening with me but that whole switch is so powerful right from i want to be loved to i want to love i want to love because that's what feels the best is loving oh it's amazing amazing stuff so um yeah i would love to hear your feedback on that you know this episode catch me on instagram or in our private facebook group and let me know what you're thinking about this episode. And I just want to do a quick reminder that the RaisingGoodHumansBook.com is live and you can pre-order Raising Good Humans now. Oh my God, it's so amazing. I'm so excited. And I've been so overwhelmed by this outpouring of support. It's so exciting and amazing. So if you would like to be part of this, please do go to RaisingGoodHumansBook.com and pre-order and enter your information in and you'll be getting all these pre-order bonuses and things so book bonuses oh my god it's so exciting i don't know it's just oh amazing so thank you and thank you for listening i i hope this episode has maybe challenged your ideas and made you think and will help us all be um, a little more loving this week I know it will be for me. So I'm wishing you a beautiful week. I'm wishing you a week full of loving intention. All right. Thank you so, so much for listening. Namaste. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.